Aurora hunting with Vincent Ledvina on episode 402 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for everybody who enjoys going out under the stars or looking for Aurora. So today we have a special guest coming on, Vincent Ledvina. He is the Aurora guy. You can find him by Googling the Aurora guy. And he's been an avid Aurora chaser and photographer. He lives in Fairbanks, Alaska, and grew up chasing auroras in Minnesota. And since then, he spent thousands of hours in the field capturing millions of photos. His passion uh, was so deep that he ended up moving to Fairbanks, and he is pursuing his PhD at the University of Alaska, studying aurora beads. So welcome to the show, Vincent. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us early because we end up discovering uh, there's a little bit more of a time difference between you and us than than we originally <laughs> thought. So uh, it's a little early for you. So we'll we'll cut you some slack here this morning. <laughs> Sounds good. How's your weather there in Fairbanks today? Not too bad. I would say it's a warm morning, which is relative, but uh, it's five degrees Fahrenheit. I think Celsius. That's like minus fourteen Celsius, something like that. It's um, the same it was, year. Oh, really? Okay. It's exactly the same. It's minus 14 here. Wow. All right. So Beautiful. yeah, I mean, it's five degrees this morning. It was two weeks ago, it was minus 50. So um, wow. warm is is uh, relative for sure. But it was 35. It was just above freezing the other day, which was just so unusual uh, for Fairbanks. We have this thing called Fool's Spring every February where we get this warm period and people get all excited and then it gets cold again. So I'm not, I'm not holding out any hope that it's going to stay this warm, but it's a nice day. Nice. So we'll uh, kind of jump into things a bit, but I was wondering, mm -hmm. you kind of mentioned a little bit of this just in our uh, preamble to the show. How did you get interested in the Aurora in the first place? Yeah, so I feel like everybody who's interested in astronomy or science has that one story that sort of catapulted them into this passion or hobby. For me, it was all the way back when I was four years old. On October 31st, 2003, it's a famous day in the world of space physics. One of the mm -hmm. strongest geomagnetic storms ever recorded occurred. And I was growing up in Minnesota in the Twin Cities, and I actually saw Aurora over my house yeah. in the suburbs, which is rare to see especially when there's so much light pollution around and i just remember seeing those dancing shimmering curtains and you know just thinking wow this is beautiful and my parents didn't really know what it was until the next day on the news when they reported it and then i think that that sort of planted the seed in my brain um of the aurora and the night sky and then um, i was in boy scouts i uh, was camping out all the time underneath the stars my dad was a photographer in college he gave me his old camera. So I started taking that on family trips. I got interested in photography, you know, my love for the outdoors, my love for science, my love for photography sort of coalesced into this uh, passion for astrophotography when I was in high school. And then sort of the ultimate, I think, for astrophotography is, um, you know, aurora photography, because, you know, the stars are always there, but the aurora is not. So it's like, you take this element of photography and this element of aurora chase and you can kind of blend them together. Um, and I found that really cool. So yeah, when I was 16, 17 years old, trying to figure out where to go to school for my bachelor's, I thought, why not North Dakota? It's five hours north. It's close to Canada. It's about as far as you can get 
um, north without going into Canada or going up to Alaska. My parents wouldn't let me move to Alaska. No. <laughs> they said it was too far. So otherwise I would have been up here earlier, but um, I went to school in North Dakota and pursued my bachelor's in physics. And there's no space physics at North Dakota, but it was somewhere where I could really hone my skills as a photographer and as an Aurora chaser. And that's what I did there. That's where I got the name, the Aurora guy, because people knew me as somebody just going out and taking photos of the Aurora on campus and outside of town. And yeah, one thing led to another. And here I am in Fairbanks, Alaska doing my PhD. Wow. That's really cool. Um, I remember that 2003 Aurora. That was wild because I, I was, you know, known as being somebody who was into astronomy and a couple of my friends like got in touch with me and said, you know, Oh, you should see the Aurora. And I was like, well, you can't see it from the middle of the city. And they're like, Oh no, you can see it. And I was like, what are they talking about? We went out and like people were just standing in the streets. It was wow. really weird cool. looking straight up. And yeah, we could see it directly overhead in the city. It was wild. I've wow. never seen mm -hmm. it again like that. But did you recall that one, Shane? Yeah, I was I was fortunate enough to be tenting that night. Uh, so I was in a provincial park that uh, I don't know what Bortle rating it would be, but it was fairly dark and uh, didn't didn't know much about like kp you know forecasts indexes that kind of thing so we were just out camping and there, we had a fire and you know we're just sitting around and looked up and i could not believe like the intensity of the green and it was as close to a whole sky aurora that i've ever seen like you know it obviously started in the north went well overhead and then i would say it probably went to the southern horizon maybe except for the last 20 degrees or so and it was incredible so we all got away from the fire we were i think we were the only ones in the park because it was october and it's mm. cold and um you know we just watched this this evolution of the aurora and how it danced still resonates so much in my brain and how bright it was it truly was incredible that's awesome yeah, pretty pretty cool stuff. And then so you were at North Dakota. So mm -hmm. that's that's not very far from us here, to be honest. Yeah, no. Yeah, that's, it's it's getting up to your neck of the woods a little bit sure. there. Yeah, I think it's only uh like a three hour drive from here. So <laughs> yeah, not too far at all. So you're you're sort of familiar with this uh area of the world. I've never been to Alaska though. It must be amazing to be living up there. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, it's one of the only places, um, well, actually, there's a lot of places where you can see the Aurora every single night, but Fairbanks is a pretty large town for the northern region. So it's kind of nice because we have all the amenities here and then you can go out um, if it's a clear night at, you know, five to 10 minutes out of town, and you can see the Aurora. Like there's there's basically Aurora here every single night in some capacity. So that's great. And wow. being able to research about the Aurora and, you know, doing my PhD and then going out and kind of seeing what I've been learning and, you know, in class at night is pretty, pretty awesome. I love that. Mm -hmm. You know, one, one thing that I love about this episode, um, you know, Chris, I don't know if you've become a, a fully, a full membership to Prairie person yet. I think you are. But, um, when, one of the things that comes with membership is you take the Aurora for granted because we see it so often here, we have a lot of dark, like, you know, we have two larger cities, but in general, the province doesn't have a lot of light pollution. So seeing Aurora is not that uncommon, but I remember Chris, uh, I don't know if you recall this one, we were in Grasslands National Park, I don't know, 
before the pandemic, I think. And there was a, a few folks, I believe they were from Germany and we had set up our telescopes and uh, you and I were observing and we went to these folks and just said, Hey, if you want to check out some stuff, we'd love to give you, you know, some views. And they asked if the Aurora was visible and we said no. And they said, mm, thanks, but no, thanks. They, they were here just for the Aurora. And, uh, I was like, oh yeah, I guess not everybody sees this. And, uh, you know, again, just taking it for granted, uh, makes me sometimes forget about how special it is. So I'm glad we, uh, we have you on Vincent and, and can talk about this stuff. Cause I think a lot of people don't get to see the Aurora and right. it truly is, is one of the most incredible things you can see, I think. Mm-hmm. I think to be a full prairie person, you have to enjoy drinking this. I don't know what it's called, Shane, but it's some sort of strange concoction of mixing tomato juice with beer. <laughs> yeah, delicious. Uh, I'll never be one that. of you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You mentioned your uh, PhD research yes. is focused on auroral beads. So yes. can you like, tell us more about this. Like, what are, I, I never heard this phrase before. Yeah. Beads. What what are auroral beads? And uh, yeah, just tell us about your research. Sure thing. So I just started at the University of Alaska Fairbanks last semester. So I'm just getting into my research, but I can tell you what auroral beads are and why they're important. I can't tell you what, what I've found yet because I really haven't found anything. So um, basically every single night, um, somewhere in the auroral oval, you have what's called a substorm. So you can think of like the auroral oval and the aurora happening around the world every single night as sort of like a storm. A substorm is this little um, sort of intensification of aurora within the auroral oval that spreads out, you know, from it, it basically starts in one place and spreads out east and west. And it causes the aurora to get really bright, really colorful, dance around. It's what everybody wants to see when they say, oh, I want to see the aurora. And they're thinking about the really you know, bright colors and the dancing movement. And these substorms, they're kind of similar to like a tornado and a thunderstorm. Um, they, they happen basically every single night. Um, it's a daily space weather phenomenon. And these substorms, right before they sort of um, I like to say pop off or explode, but right before the onset of the substorm, um, you usually see in the sky this auroral arc, which sort of kicks everything off. So you have this one auroral arc. It looks like a quiet, stable auroral arc. It's called a growth phase arc. And right before the substorm occurs, this arc grows little beads along it. So it actually looks like beads. So you have this arc in the sky. Um, you know, I don't know, imagine you're standing out in Fairbanks and you see this ribbon of Aurora right overhead. And then all of a sudden you see this ribbon of Aurora start forming these waves and kinks. Those are the beads. If you look at it from the side, you can actually see they're not just 2d structures, but they're 3d. So they'll have, um, like rays and pillars coming off of them, but they literally look like beads and they only last about a minute or two, but they sort of form the start of the substorm. So these beads are somehow tied to the substorm onset process. And for a scientist, that's really interesting because we're trying to figure out what causes substorms. Nobody really knows actually why these substorms occur. And they're important not only for just the fundamental nature of what's going on with the aurora, because these substorms happen all the time. It's a sort of fundamental cyclic process that's happening every single day. We don't know how they occur. We know that they happen. We have lots of measurements and recordings of them, um, but also substorms can be damaging to spacecraft who are flying um, through the aurora. 
um, especially the sort of upper boundary of the aurora. When you have the substorm, the aurora gets really, really bright, um, really intense. It's a lot of energy in the atmosphere. So it can damage spacecraft electronics. It can also cause the atmosphere to heat up, which can cause more density in those areas. And that can cause spacecrafts to sort of lose their orbit a little bit. So if they're not corrected, that could cause um, changes in the orbit over time. But then what's the most um, potent effect of substorms is that when you have um, a time-varying magnetic field, so this is sort of getting into the physics, but um, when you have a time-varying magnetic field, it induces a current in the ground. Those are called geomagnetically induced currents. And those currents, if you have susceptible power grids, can actually damage power grids. So you might have heard of like the Carrington event. You might have heard of the of the big solar storm in 1989, even in 2003. Uh, there were blackouts because of those big auroras, those big substorms, those big geomagnetic storms due to geomagnetically induced currents. So, yeah, we really want to know what causes substorms. And auroral beads are sort of one piece of the puzzle, right? Um, usually with a PhD, you sort of hone in on like one a specific phenomenon. So I'm doing auroral beads. I think they're really interesting because you can see them. Uh, it's not just this sort of invisible phenomenon that you're looking at spacecraft data and you're sort of trying to interpret what's what's happening in outer space. So you can actually see them in the sky. And a lot of the research right now is focused on videos of auroral beads, trying to figure out how they're swirling and how they're moving and um, you know how fast they're sort of spinning. And what's really cool about that is that um, we're trying to use citizen science data, so data from photographers. So um, with auroral beads and a lot of other phenomena in uh, space physics and auroral physics, um, auroral photographers, aurora chasers are heavily leveraged because um, the actual data quality from the citizen science cameras are just as good sometimes as the science grade cameras. So that's really cool too, because you're involving the public in real research. So Vincent, my, do you, my do you mind a, is blown. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That was a whole thing, but it, 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 you know, it's just, there's, there's a lot of layers to it. That's ahead, really Jim. cool. Yeah. Do you put out a call to the Aurora chasers, like the, the various folks or, or is mm -hmm. there a way for them just to submit data, photos, that kind of stuff? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm an Aurora chaser. I'm part of the Aurora chasing community, but I'm also sort of in the research community too, or just you know, getting my feet wet in that. So it's kind of fun because I can be this sort of bridge between like, what do the researchers need and what do the Aurora chasers want to do? Um, but there's a really cool site. I actually interned for this project. It's a NASA citizen science project called Aurorasaurus, like the dinosaur. Um, Aurorasaurus.org is a place where people can submit their photos of Aurora that they've seen, not only in real time. So it's it's really designed to improve um predictions of where the aurora is being seen with crowdsourced reports from aurora chasers. So you can go on there, aurorasource.org, and submit a report of aurora to their platform, and it'll show up on a map. So you can see all these reports of aurora every single night, and you can see where aurora is actually being seen. Um, but not only that, but you can backdate reports too. So if you have this time lapse of a weird aurora that you saw, you can still upload that, and that's also useful. Hmm. Very cool. I, I don't know if this question is on, on the list here. Um, do you, do you have any like basic recommendations if somebody wanted to photograph the Aurora, what's the best way to do it? There's a lot of different ways. I mean, what's really cool now is that even a smartphone can take an Aurora photo. So 
honestly, I mean, if you have a smartphone, just hold it up to the night sky. If you think it's Aurora and it shows up green on your smartphone, then it's Aurora. Um, that's also a huge tip I give people is, you know, Aurora sometimes looks like clouds, especially if you're not, if you don't have a trained eye, you might say, oh, that just looks like a cloud, but it's kind of moving maybe a little bit. It kind of looks like glowy. Well, if you take your phone, it's probably going to see the green, especially if you have a newer iPhone or a newer Android phone. But if you really want to get into it, um, you can buy a mirrorless or DSLR camera and um, we can get into the you know more specifics later. But um, in terms of settings, you want your lowest uh, F number or widest aperture setting on your lens. You ideally want a, a, a shorter focal length or a more wide angle lens so you can see more of the landscape and more of the sky. Um, you want your, your ISO setting, which is sort of like your gain setting. Um, that's going to vary depending on how dark it is, but I usually set mine between 1600 and 6400. And then your shutter speed, uh, that's also going to vary based on how bright the Aurora is and how fast it's moving. You don't want your shutter speed to be too long if the Aurora is moving around because it's going to blur it out. It's going to show the motion blur of the Aurora. And that's the same with astrophotography too, but you're dealing with star trailing. <laughs> but with the Aurora, they're moving a lot faster than stars rotating across the sky. So I usually set my shutter speed between five and 10 seconds. So five and 10 seconds, widest aperture setting or lowest F number and ISO between 1600 and 6400. Take a test shot and see how it works out. It'll probably be fine. Mm, cool. And and just on a static tripod or do you use any kind of tracker? Um, so you can use a tracker. Uh, a, a star tracker works just fine. Actually, it's almost better to use a star tracker because even at like 10 seconds or 15 seconds, technically you're below what's called the 400 rule or 500 rule, which people might be might not be familiar with that but um back in the days of film and you know even now uh people say that the longest shutter speed you can use for a given lens with a given focal length is the is the number 500 divided by the focal length of the lens so for example um a 20 millimeter lens 500 divided by 20 is 25 so 25 seconds would be your max uh shutter speed your longest shutter speed you could use but even at those shutter speeds, you start to see star trails mm -hmm. if you really zoom in on a pixel level. So a star tracker is always always a good idea. It's just an extra step. So I usually don't use one. Um, but yeah, a static tripod is always the best. I mean, you kind of need a tripod. Um, although it's interesting. Nowadays, modern cameras and their stabilization systems are, are pretty good. I've handheld shots on my Sony A7S III with like a three or four shot three or four second shutter speed. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, you can, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really nice. I mean, it's so accessible now, I would say five or six years ago. I mean, smartphones really couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. um, cameras were a lot less user-friendly and a lot less forgiving, but nowadays you can pretty much pick up a camera from Best Buy and, you know, and a basic lens, throw it in auto mode and it'll probably do an okay job. It's mm -hmm. just so advanced now. The computers are so good. Oh, that's cool. I, I think a lot of people will be interested in that. Before we get too far along, folks, maybe we should have done this earlier. Um, what are Aurora exactly? Like, what are these things uh, yeah. that, that we see? Yeah, maybe we should have defined it. Most of our listeners are going to be familiar, but just for those. I'm sure, guys. yeah. Yeah, so I guess we'll start with the sun. So everything with the Aurora starts with the sun and space weather. So um, I like to think of the sun as sort of this hot cup of coffee. Really, it's a big glowing ball of plasma and gas. But um, a hot cup of coffee is going to have steam rising up off the surface, right? Once, you know, once it's all warmed up. And the sun is similar. It has solar wind that's sort of constantly streaming away from the surface of the sun, from its surface. 
and the solar wind pervades the solar system. The earth is sort of bathed in the solar wind and the solar wind contains charged particles and those charged particles have magnetic fields around them. And also, you know, those charged particles and magnetic fields have energy. So you have this energy coming out from the sun and hitting earth, but it doesn't just hit earth. We have a magnetic bubble that sort of protects us like a shield. So this energy comes and hits our shield. Well, a lot of it gets deflected off, but some of it makes it through. It penetrates our magnetosphere, as it's actually called. And um, it eventually, through a process called magnetic reconnection, it doesn't just go in and you know instantly hit the atmosphere. It goes through this process called magnetic reconnection. Um, and if you're really interested, you can uh, check out uh, what's called the Dungy cycle. The guy's name is Dungy, who discovered this process. But it's the way that the energy couples between the solar wind and the magnetic field of Earth. Essentially, what happens, though, is some of the energy from the solar wind penetrates down into the atmosphere um, and causes the aurora. So the aurora are actually formed um, in the same way that neon lamps work. So you have these charged particles coming in from outer space and they energize gases in the upper atmosphere. The lower energy particles precipitate or um, penetrate higher up in the atmosphere because they don't have, as, you know, don't have as much energy. So they sort of land first. And that upper level is oxygen, which produces the red colors. If you go further down, particles with more energy will hit oxygen at lower altitudes, which causes green. And then even further down, you have a layer of nitrogen. And that's what you get when the aurora is really, really intense. You have the highest energy particles coming in, and that produces sort of a pink fringe on the bottom. So really, the aurora, everything starts with the sun and space weather. And you have the solar wind constantly streaming out from the sun. But then you also have these enhancements in the solar wind, these um, space weather events or solar storms. And those can come from a variety of phenomena, but the two biggest ones, the two most prominent uh, space weather events are high-speed streams or fast solar wind and coronal mass ejections, which are probably the ones that people most hear about because they're the most severe. They can cause the most severe space weather. Um, so when those occur, you have um, and it, usually an increased speed in the solar wind and, it, and an increased density of the particles. And that just creates more pressure on the magnetic field and causes those particles to penetrate uh, further and um, more frequently into the uh, into Earth's magnetosphere and down into our atmosphere. So that's when you can get the auroras uh, moving from sort of the Alaska latitude down to you know the southern southern Canadian provinces and even northern U.S. Um, latitudes. You mentioned some of the colors there, uh, the greens, mm -hmm. some of the pinks. Uh, I've seen yellows for some reason. Uh, I seem to pick up the yellows pretty good with my eye. Um, in some of the photos, you see purples, blues. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, they can be as as not or if, if not more colorful than rainbows at times. Yeah. So what causes all these different colors? Why aren't they all just one color? And mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so the actual colors themselves are caused by the different um, transitions of the elements. So um, I think, yeah, the red and the green are both oxygen. Uh, the blue, so there's actually blue aurora, which occurs sort of at the same altitudes as the reds. Um, that's That can only be caused by photoionization, so sunlight. So you can only see the blues um, shortly after sunset or shortly before sunrise. So they're kind of the rarest type of aurora, in my opinion. And uh, the purples are sort of a mixing between the reds and the blues. Um, orange is another common color that people see. It's sort of a mix between the red and the green. 
Um, and then yellow, you can sometimes see if the aurora is really close to the horizon in a similar way that sunsets are tinged orange. It's because of all the dust, right? Oh. The dust in the atmosphere. Yeah. So the aurora, it operates under the same conditions. Um, that green can sort of shift to a more uh, yellow or orange. And I've definitely seen that in North Dakota where the aurora is usually to the northern horizon. Yeah. Um, so you see these substorms with the aurora getting really bright, but you're further south of the aurora oval. So you're seeing that from a from a you know side side perspective so you're seeing this really intense aurora that in the nitrogen fringe which is usually called which is uh pink usually um can actually appear as sort of an orange or a red color uh mm -hmm. right you know right underneath that green band so the actual colors of the aurora are really only uh that pink nitrogen the green and red oxygen and the blue uh nitrogen at the higher altitudes all the rest of the colors are formed by mixing Huh. That's pretty cool. I didn't realize that the uh, like the yellow is is more of a product of how we're seeing it versus mm -hmm. something intrinsic. Uh, because the first time I ever noticed that was when I was down in, in, in the grasslands, which is mm. basically just north of North Dakota, strangely enough. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, when I've been further north, I haven't noticed that as much. So it's kind of like, yeah, that's that's really cool. So you have to be in a spot where the aurora is bright enough, but low enough. And once you get further north, yeah. probably it's just usually much higher. So you don't see it. That's pretty right. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very neat. Um one of the things you mentioned as well is uh, like the bands, the curtains, mm -hmm. um, a few other, a few of the other sort of types of aurora that we see. So why do we see, why isn't it always just like, you know, sometimes we notice that the sky is just glowing in the north. Sometimes yep. that glow can just get pretty darn bright. Sometimes you'll see these um, like pillars and curtains mm -hmm. that are just exquisitely detailed like i've even mm -hmm. looked at them in my binoculars and been able to see detail even my eye alone can't see like what what are the different types of aurora phenomena that we can see in visual appearance and mm -hmm. why aren't they all the same that's a great question so that's so i mean i can give you a very simple explanation but the actual scientific explanation is something that takes a whole phd so that, that's all right i'm gonna yeah so um, basically, the different types of aurora that you see are caused by different processes going on in space. So um, the aurora, you know, are formed by charged particles hitting the atmosphere, precipitating or penetrating down and hitting different gases at different altitudes. Well, those particles can come from different places in space. They can come from the radiation belts. They can come from the magneto tail, which is way, you know, way far away. Um, they can come straight from the solar wind. So there's a lot of places where these charged particles can come from, and that can create different types of aurora. There's also waves sort of traveling along these magnetic field lines that thread down um, through the atmosphere. And these waves can also cause different types of aurora. So um, really, the type of aurora you're seeing is sort of tied to the different mechanisms at play in outer space. And um, what's a really common setup, at least, so there's sort of a global... Uh, scale morphology to the aurora so sort of a a global pattern to the aurora that you'll see um, if you're up in the auroral oval and what that is is um, we often define so just to back up a little bit we often define the aurora in terms of a pre-midnight a midnight and a post-midnight and that literally means pre-midnight so dusk so after sunset to midnight midnight so around midnight and usually midnight is around local time but it's technically called magnetic midnight so in alaska magnetic midnight is actually at, at around 1 30 or 2 a.m 
but I think in Canada, Southern Canada, it's around midnight. So that all has to do with the position of the geomagnetic North Pole not and South Pole not actually being at the geographic North and South Poles. And also the fact that there's time zones too. So you have to take that into account. But anyways, you have pre-midnight, midnight, and post-midnight. In the pre-midnight sector of the Aurora, you often see these, uh, what are called um, arcs or bands. And those usually set up around uh, 9 or 10 p.m. here in Alaska. Let's just say it's a it's a normal quiet night. Um, you know, nothing major with activity, but it's not totally dead. So there's some activity. Usually you have these bands that set up. Uh, they start in the north, sort of northeast, and they as the auroral oval rotates in. So you're basically rotating underneath the auroral oval. Since the Earth is spinning, the auroral oval is always biased towards the night side. So it's a little bit lopsided. Um, so it's 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 fattest on the night side where all those particles are coming in um, from the night side. So as you're rotating underneath the auroral oval, you start to see these bands um, sort of move from the northeast more overhead. And you have sometimes a series of um, bands moving from east to west, you know, could be four or five different bands. And then around midnight or right before you usually have a substorm where the equator word most band, that's that growth phase arc where you have the auroral beads um expands and there's um, a growth phase of the substorm which is the post midnight then you have um the expansion phase of the substorm which is when the aurora goes nuts um the aurora sort of breaks up from the bands into basically random structures you can get spirals you can get curls um which are beautiful they're like these big sort of i i like to call them aurora cinnamon rolls because they look like these big uh, twirls of aurora that sort of move from east to west um and it's part of this feature called a westward traveling surge, which you can actually see sometimes if the substorm initiates. So the substorm has one initiation point in the auroral oval. Sometimes if it initiates further east of you, you can actually see the substorm traveling towards your direction. You can see, um, I've, I've seen this many times, where you're looking to the east and you're seeing this huge bright spot of aurora and you're like, oh my God, that's the substorm, it's coming. You can see this westward traveling surge and all of a sudden it surges over you and the aurora just explodes. Those are usually those spirals and curls. Uh, oh, you'll like see these spirals coming cool. in and it's just like curl after curl after curl, these huge, I mean, they can take up the entire sky. They're just gigantic. Um, and actually those are a product of beads. Sometimes the beads can start out as these really small little points of light and then start spinning up uh, due to something called Kelvin Helmholtz instability. It's the same way of just like you pour a creamer in a coffee and you can see it sort of twirling up and like forming these weird spirals. It's the same thing. You have these beads and suddenly they start curling in on each other and they can form these huge spirals. It's really cool. But hmm. anyways, you have the substorm, it occurs, and then you have this recovery period post midnight. So Remember, we had the growth phase arcs. We had all the arcs setting up. We had the substorm where the aurora just goes nuts. Uh, it's sort of, you know, I don't know. That's It's basically as good of a way as I can describe it. it. Just you don't really have any, you know, concrete forms except for just aurora all over the place. It fills the entire sky. You have little streamers that pop up here and there. Um, really fast movement. So it's really, um, really dynamic aurora. And then after the substorm, you have a recovery period where you have pulsating aurora. So you've probably seen a lot of pulsating yep. aurora because in I've North Dakota. I've seen all of this. I just didn't know. I thought it was just random. Like, oh, now oh, no. aurora. No, now no, it's no. calmed down. Now it's pul I, This is like totally blowing because I've witnessed all of this before. I just yeah. didn't know what I was looking at. <laughs> yeah. So that's, yeah. So that gets into something else too is like aurora chasers have seen all of this. So scientists, you know, they spend six or seven years studying this stuff. 
And Aurora chasers could tell them like, oh yeah, I've seen that. So that's something that's really cool to me is that, um, you know, scientists are, you know, they definitely understand the equations and sort of the science side of things, but the Aurora chasers already know all this stuff, just don't know what equations are behind the different, you know, auroral spirals or whatever. But um, yeah, the pulsating Aurora is what follows the substorm. And that's when you see like these patches of Aurora sort of blinking on and off. Yeah. Really, really common at uh, mid latitudes because the pulsating Aurora usually extends more equatorward than the normal Aurora and sort of mm -hmm. um, just kind of, you know, drifts towards the south if you're in the northern hemisphere. So I've seen that a lot in North Dakota where you see these like almost looks like flame. So people call it flaming furnace Aurora, where you have these like sort of like flames coming up from um, this like bottom of the Aurora and it sort of fills this little blob. And you can mm -hmm. see that all over the sky, like these uh, flaming, it looks like a flaming furnace, honestly. Um, but yeah, that's pulsating Aurora. And then that's the substorm cycle. So that happens every single night. And if it's a big geomagnetic storm, you'll see that at lower latitudes. But usually we just see that up here in Alaska um, because the aurora is, you know, just doing its thing without any space weather enhancement. It's just in this auroral oval, which is around 68 degrees geomagnetic latitude. So that's right in Fairbanks, uh, Yellowknife, Churchill, uh, Reykjavik, Iceland, uh, Tromso, Norway, Abisko, uh, places like that. Um, but yeah, if there's a big geomagnetic storm, you could see all that all that no problem from Canada, from Southern Canada. This is so cool. Like mm -hmm. I was taking some notes there. So my apologies for me typing. I just, some of this stuff is uh, like, it's very, it's, I've seen this before. I just had no idea that you get different types of Aurora at different mm. times. I knew that that Aurora band was sort of stronger in some areas than others. I thought it was fairly static though. I didn't realize it, it moved quite like that. So this is uh, this is really interesting. You know, I I see the aurora quite a bit because I'm out observing a lot and I'm out at different times of night, like when it's clear. Mm -hmm. And I I just didn't realize. Like sometimes I notice that it's stronger than others. You know, and we see it kick up, we'll say, oh, it's kicked up, and then mm -hmm. you know we'll go inside because we're trying to deep sky observing. Sometimes it can be annoying, <laughs> and then uh, you know we'll come out in an hour to be completely gone. Or yeah. like sometimes it uh, it gets very active, and I'll you know over to the to the cabin and say to my wife oh you should come out and see the aurora she, oh yeah yeah i'm just going to finish watching the show and then come out and then by the time she wanders out there's no aurora right or very little yeah. you yeah. know and then she goes in and then it's the same thing like an hour or so later I'll go, oh no you should come out again then yeah. oh yeah i'll come out in 10 minutes and then you know of course it settles down again right it's mm -hmm. but, the, but there's a reason why that's happening that's so cool right tell us about steve though you didn't mention steve Ooh. yet yeah so i steve is great steve is like one of my favorite stories ever so um, do you know the story? I mean, I can just, I can say the story of Steve if you want. I'm sure I, you're familiar I, with so it. So I saw what they call the Steve phenomenon a couple times before it was in, I didn't know this is what it would be called, but it was before it was even called Steve. I was so observing this is like in 2009 and mm -hmm. I saw this arc go right from the sort of Western horizon and then it extended right up to the eastern horizon in the northern part of the sky up maybe 15 or 20 degrees and then it slowly made its way and came like directly overhead but it was narrow it was only about two mm. degrees maybe three degrees across narrow enough that i could take my like wide field five inch refractor and go right from the uh eastern or western horizon go straight overhead into the eastern mm. horizon but uh anyway go go ahead and tell the story because i'm not as familiar with the whole story as as you would be 
All right. So it all started back in, I think, 2014 or 2015. Um, so just to add some context, Steve has always existed. It's always been here, you know, as long as Auroras have existed, but it didn't really get attention until photographers started noticing it. And um, people in the Alberta Aurora Chasers especially uh, went to scientists at the University of Calgary. So it was really Chris Ratzlaff and the Alberta Aurora Chasers. Chris Ratzlaff is the is the founder of the Alberta Aurora Chasers and Eric Donovan, who's um, a scientist at the University of Calgary. So Chris Ratzlaff, they were actually in a bar, um, I think, after a conference or something. Chris Ratzlaff started taking out his camera and showing Eric these photos of Steve. And he was like, hey, I just have to like tell you about this weird aurora I was seeing. And um, here I have some photos of it. And Eric was like, oh, that's just a proton aurora. We we know all about that. We've been studying that for 40, 50 years. Like we have great data of those things, you know, whatever. And Chris was like, no, no, no. I could actually see this with my eye. Like this was this was not just a camera only phenomenon because yeah. sometimes the aurora is so faint that you can only see it on your camera, right? And yeah. proton aurora is the same. It's really faint. You can't see it with your eyes. And it's usually super red too. So only the cameras can pick it up. Well, when Chris told Eric, hey, I can see this with my eyes, Eric was like, wait a minute. You're saying that this is bright enough where you could see it with your eyes. Because proton aurora, you can't see it with your eyes. All of a sudden there was this, you know, basically like, you know, Eric takes out his napkin and pen and starts writing things down like this is not a normal not a normal aurora and of course it wasn't it was steve and the name steve comes from the movie over the hedge i don't know if you've seen that movie but that was one of my first so it's an animated movie i think like pixar or dreamworks or something and it's about um this neighborhood gang of like um just like animals like turtles squirrels like rabbits and um they're they're I don't know exactly what the premise of the movie is anymore, but it's like a 2005 movie, but um, basically everything over the hedge, because they're in this neighborhood, like this, I don't know, suburb where there's hedges and uh, fences and stuff, everything over the hedge that they didn't know about was called Steve. They just called all the humans and the, and the life over the hedge, Steve. So it's, it's really funny. So it's literally named after this kid's movie of everything over the hedge that we didn't know about, or that the animals didn't know about is Steve. And that's, like Steve, we didn't know about Steve. It was just like this mystery. And then, um, yeah, sooner or later, you know, the scientists caught on. And uh, the first paper, I believe, was published in 2015. I think it's New Science in Plain Sight, Citizen Scientists Discover Steve or something. And it's a, a paper by Liz McDonald. Um, and that sort of details everything about Steve, the story of Steve and uh, what it is. And it's not an aurora. So, uh, it appears as this east to west band in the sky, usually looking just like a white band. But in photos, it can look um, this sort of mauve color, like a whitish pink. Sometimes you can actually see that to your eye. I've, I've personally never seen the color. I've seen Steve probably four or five times um, down in North Dakota. We don't really see them up here in Alaska for some reason. But um, and then alongside Steve, sometimes you get the picket fence. So you have Steve, which is this band or arc across the sky, usually um, equatorward of the main aurora. So, and it usually happens after a substorm. So, like I was saying with that pulsating aurora, once the aurora has sort of flared up and starts calming down, you you usually see Steve coming out east to west. So um, people say, "Oh, it's Steve time!" Like you know, we have to be watching out for Steve. So everyone rotates their cameras ninety degrees. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the picket fence is sort of this. Uh, structured um and periodic emission of green uh right underneath steve and it's 
it's not the same phenomena, um, not the same phenomenon that creates Steve. So Steve is sort of this hot flow of gas that's so hot it starts to glow. And the picket fence is thought to be normal precipitation, just like regular Aurora, but it's really, really pure green, um, really, really pure green emission. So it's it's kind of odd in that way. Um, but yeah, that's the story of Steve. It sort of was born out of photographers, you know, just looking up at the sky and saying, hey, you know, what's going on here? And going to the scientists with their photos. And that's that's sort of the whole spirit of Aurora Science, in my opinion, is we're constantly learning something new through the photographers and through the photographers photos, which I think is just so cool. Yeah. I, like I remember when there were some papers being written about it because I had taken after I saw this that night where there was 2009 or 2010, it was one or the other, but I had taken detailed notes because mm -hmm. it really caught my attention. And then somebody at some point did ask for those notes. I sent them off. They're writing a paper. I don't know if they ever made it to the paper or not. Cool. But the thing that struck me with that is that, it it really bisected the entire sky going right up through the zenith pretty much. Mm -hmm. And the sky that was to the north was like a hazy sort of, it had more like a milky, almost seemed like high cloud over, but it was, it seemed like it was part of this phenomena. And then everything to the south was like regular clear sky. It mm -hmm. was, uh, it was so weird. It was so weird to, uh, to see this pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Um, I got a I got a question. This wasn't on my list or anything, but years ago when I was I was just getting into astronomy. So this is like in maybe the late nineties or so. I went out one night to observe. It was supposed to be a really good clear night, and I get out and the sky just was kind of milky or whatever. And then I noticed it was like pulsating with like these mm. waves that were like rolling over top. And then um, it it turned out that it was some sort of aurora of some sort, but I've never seen that before mm. uh, or since where you get like these very rapid waves that was just sort of rolling over the whole sky. Did you ever mm. see one like that before? Like the whole sky, it would just like ripple like super quick though, you know? Yeah, actually, I can't remember actually seeing that type of aurora, but it was interesting. I was at a conference um, just a few weeks ago and somebody described the exact same type of aurora that you're talking about. I think during really big geomagnetic storms too um you know you get this 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 really um this really intense pulsating aurora and these patches can be really small but they can actually be really big too so i've seen really big patches of pulsating aurora kind of do that where you can actually see the patch so the patch doesn't this is another like this is this could be a phd topic too but <laughs> the pat patches of the pulsating aurora don't fill um uniformly so actually the 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 patch can fill from one side and sort of move to the other side in, in like this wave motion yeah especially if you're right underneath it so you might yeah. have been seeing just a really really big patch of pulsating aurora it was that was so big that it just filled your field of view wild that's, that's my guess but it could have been something completely different i mean nowadays you can't write anything off because mm -hmm. there yeah. are new phenomena being discovered um like every single year or every single month you know I, I, the more I that you look ended, at things the more you can see so i think it ended up being in the in the media even at like at because what i did is i was watching this and i couldn't do astronomy it was you just couldn't do astronomy so i went <laughs> home to to grab my mother because she's kind of sort of interested in astronomy mm -hmm. and because we usually don't get much aurora back in nova scotia i went home and said you've got to come see this so we drove back out and I think we had the radio on and they had said that there was like a lot of aurora activity 
Um, okay. It said that's what it was, but it, it was really, really weird. Hey, another question was, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned the, the current in the ground, like in 2003 and the Carrington yep. event, uh, that, that's kind of caught my attention. So, cause I was wondering, sometimes people have mentioned like hearing sounds or other Ooh, things. Yeah. So I was wondering if, if that could be connected to that or, or if you've heard much about people hearing sounds when, uh, the Aurora is in the sky. So the sound of the Aurora. Yeah. I knew I was going to get that one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, that is sort of the biggest mystery in my opinion is I've, I've, I've never heard the Aurora and to my knowledge, there's no scientific evidence of Aurora creating, um, sound that we can hear. It does create, um, very low frequency waves, but we're talking about like subhertz, and I'm pretty sure those waves, um, I'm pretty sure you can't hear subhertz. So, and they're also really, really small waves. You can barely detect them with like, even, um, like special instruments on the ground. They're super small. But people have described the sound of Aurora to me. I mean, multiple people, especially after I give talks and stuff, people come up to me and say, hey, I heard the Aurora. Like, have you heard it? You know, what's the science behind it? And I just have to say, I don't I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows because um, there's no evidence technically of the sound. But I believe people when they say that they've heard it. And the same uh, story keeps reappearing every single time is that the sound of the Aurora sort of um is like crackling bacon or like um like rain hitting a roof like this sort of wishing sound or like um crackling stuff like that i've i personally never heard the aurora but a lot of my friends who've lived up here in fairbanks for 40 50 years or um i went to churchill and one of our friends uh who's lived there for 30 40 years was like oh i've i've heard it a couple times maybe three times when they're really really strong so yeah i don't know i mean i've never heard it but I, I really can't answer because I don't want to, you know, discount everyone's story and just say, oh, wow, there's no scientific evidence of it. Because mm-hmm. as we've seen before, you can't just say that. I mean, look at Steve, yeah. for example, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Do you ever hear the Aurora, Shane? Never heard it, but I've heard stories of people hearing it. And uh, the stories I've heard are often like uh, if there's any sort of common denominator it's usually you know further north and winter mm-hmm. uh, i don't know yeah. i don't know why that is but uh to your point vincent uh like how you described it is how i've heard it described as crackling mm-hmm. bacon or uh kind of that rain on a rooftop sort of yep. and and like uh a very abnormal noise like when i've heard mm-hmm. people describe it they're like it it's not like anything i've ever heard before uh, so who knows? It's uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, what it is, I guess, who knows? Whenever I, I close my eyes, I can hear crackling bacon anyway. So <laughs> just dreaming. Of, you're hungry, Chris. Just, just dreaming. <laughs> just dreaming of it. So how do you chase Aurora? Is there like any kind of secret to knowing when to go out and when to uh, when to see them? Yeah, so um, it really depends on where you are. So if you're in like Alaska or the auroral oval, the aurora is out every single night. There's not so much chasing aurora as much as it is chasing clear skies and mm-hmm. being patient. Um, so up here in Alaska, there's going to be aurora at, at some point, but uh, you're really chasing the substorm. So you're trying to figure out when these substorms are going to happen because that's when the aurora gets really bright, really active, the best colors, etc. So um, substorms usually happen an hour before magnetic midnight. And up here, that's around 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. So if you're up in Alaska, just wait until 1 or 2 and you should see a substorm if the data are pretty good. 
Um, it's really hard to forecast when a substorm is going to happen. There are some tools you can use. There's like special magnetometers where you can look at the plots and you can look for these big jumps in the plots. And those can tell you when particles are being shoved into the atmosphere from down in the, you know, down in the magneto tail. Um, but yeah, if you're up in high latitudes, you really don't have to chase the aurora per se as much as uh, just find a nice spot to pull over and watch them, you know, away from the city lights. You want to try and be away from light pollution if you can. Mm -hmm. um, usually you can see them actually in the city if they're bright enough. I mean, I've seen them, you know, coming out of the bars and in uh, downtown Fairbanks. I'll, you know, it'll be like 2 a.m. Right. And I'm like, oh, yeah, there's the Aurora. And I'll point to people and, uh, you know, they're like, oh, I've never seen it before, even though they lived in Fairbanks for 30 years, <laughs> yeah. but, um, yeah, you can see them up here. No problem. But if you're down at mid latitudes, it does take a little bit more work because, you know, you need space for other activities. So for that, I would just say, you know, if you don't want to learn the science, which is fair, a lot of people just want to see the Aurora. They don't care necessarily about CMEs, high speed streams, whatever. I just say, look at webcams and join some Facebook groups where people are out taking photos of the Aurora or just out at night, you know, taking photos of the night sky, because, Sometimes the data will tell you one thing and the Aurora will do a completely other thing anyways, even if you do all your homework. So I just say, watch some webcams and just keep an eye on those. If you have a late night, you know, stay up and just, um, you know, watch and see what's going on. But if you see in the news that there's going to be a, you know, a really good geomagnetic storm one day, if you see a KP six or seven, let's say forecasted for a specific night, well then, you know, that night you should check the webcams more um, and just see how conditions evolve. But yeah, if you really want to get into the Aurora chasing and the data, it does take some work. Um, yeah. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. You could go on for another couple hours on that topic. Yeah. So cool. You mentioned going to Churchill. Have you yeah. ever uh, gone down South to see the Aurora Australis? I've been to New Zealand once and oh, okay. did not get lucky with the Aurora. So yeah, you need some space weather activity to see it in New Zealand. That's about the same geomagnetic latitude as the Twin Cities in Minnesota. So you don't see the Aurora every single day in the Twin Cities for sure. And definitely not in New Zealand. So yeah, I was down there for a couple of weeks with my dad, like way back in like 2017. And that was also during solar minimum too. Um, so there wasn't as much activity. So yeah, I didn't get to see it, but that's a bucket list, especially down in Antarctica. That'd be super cool. So what, what do you do in the summer when you're not, cause it's, you know, it's bright enough <laughs> here in Saskatchewan in the summer, it must be really bright in the summers up in, uh, up in Fairbanks. Yeah. So, yeah, we lose our, our night, our official night, um, I think April 14th and we don't get it back until the end of August, like August 25th. Whoa. So, and it's one of those things where it's like an exponential. So it, you know, kind of goes like that and then right around the equinox is just sort of ramping up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we don't get any Aurora really at the end of April until the end of August. So I, I actually leave Alaska because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 well, I actually, I'm, I'm doing an internship this summer. So I'm, I'm going to be in Los Angeles. So definitely oh, no nice. Aurora in Los Angeles, but if I had my choice, I would probably go to Churchill. Uh, Churchill's a little bit further South, but because the Aurora Oval actually dips, it, you guys are pretty lucky. I mean, the Aurora Oval really favors Canada. It actually dips right over Churchill. So Churchill actually gets an extra almost one and a half months of Aurora. You can see Aurora and Churchill up to like mid-May and then mm -hmm. starting in like mid-July, you can see Aurora again. So, I mean, if I, if I had like my dream sort of job and like, and like money was no object, I would move from Alaska to Churchill and then, you know, stay in Churchill for a little bit and then just kind of work my way further South 
and then start working my way further north again as the as the night uh started creeping back in so well i remember there's there's a school there at one point in time yeah. they contacted me this was years ago because they were looking for somebody to be like their aurora person in residence and i was like i know nothing about aurora i'd be the worst person right <laughs> but i think the uh, northern study center right is that is yeah that, is that's that what it. it was called yeah 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 i i can't remember all the details but i was like i, I would be the worst person for you to do that but i, I would love to come can you just pay for me to come? No answers. <laughs> that, that was it. That was it. Um, did we talk enough about photography? Do we? How do you shoot your videos? You've got some beautiful 8K videos on your website. Oh, Maybe thank you. Tell us a little bit about your website and ebooks. Sure. Yep, yep. That sort of stuff too. Yeah. So um, the photography is something that I'm super passionate about. I love doing it. Um, I just love taking photos of the Aurora and showing people and getting them excited about um the night sky and science. I think the Aurora is one of the few subjects in astrophysics where it really touches everybody. It not only has that, um, you know, technological effect where you have to study it because you want to protect, um, you know, infrastructure in space on the ground. Like there's, you know, sort of a, you know, aspect of it that everybody should care about. Um, and then it's also a cultural phenomenon. I mean, it's tied to so many indigenous religions and um, worldviews. It's a source of tourism for northern communities. It's beautiful, um, not only to witness, but also to photograph. So it's just amazing in that sense. So I love sharing photos of the Aurora so that people can get excited about it. Um, I do a lot of time-lapse photography, which I think is one of the best ways of showing the Aurora because it shows the movement of the Aurora. Um, and that's something that a lot of people don't realize is that when the Aurora is going through the substorm phase, um, and also at other points too, it doesn't just, you know, it's not just static in the sky. It could be over here in one second and over here in the other second. I mean, it could really move really quickly. So a time-lapse can show that. Um, and I love doing that. Um, and that's really simple now with modern cameras. There's a, there's usually a mode, uh, sort of like this intervalometer is what they call it mode inside cameras where you're basically taking a photo every set, uh, period of time. So you have a fixed interval. Usually I'm, shooting around five to 10 seconds and you're shooting one photo after the other. And then in post-processing, you can take those photos and compile them into a video. Usually I like to do it at uh, 40 or sorry, 24 or 30 frames per second, which is sort of a normal cinematic frame rate. Um, but then you can also take real-time videos of the Aurora, which are not time-lapse. That's what I really like to do because you're just running around with your camera and shooting videos just as you were is as you would do on your phone, but you're doing it with a really fancy camera so you can get a really clean image. And those videos I think are the best for showing the beauty of the Aurora because it's literally like, you know, you're taking a GoPro and you're just sticking it up at the sky and you're showing people exactly what you can see. Um, with photos, you're with, you know, still photography, you're sort of, um, you know, accentuating the colors, you know, you're, you're sort of accentuating the brightness, which isn't a bad thing, but it's not what you're going to see with your eyes usually. Um, so yeah, those are the two types of video I like to do. And I like to post those. I have a YouTube channel where I um, post, I make these short films about the Aurora. I'm working on one now, but what's your YouTube um, channel called? It's just the Aurora guy, or okay. I think, I think the handle is just at Vincent Ledvina. So if you want to follow me on social media, feel free. Um, I just post Aurora stuff. So if you like Aurora's, you know, you're in the right place if you're following me on socials, but um, everything is just at Vincent Ledvina or 
if you Google Vincent, the Aurora guy or um, Vincent Ledovina, the Aurora guy, I should pop up. I'm trying to get the handle the Aurora guy, but one of my friends has it and he really likes <laughs> he really likes that handle. So I'm like, hey, you know, maybe in a couple of years when I have some money, I'll I'll uh, offer to buy it off you. But yeah, if you just Google my name, uh, it'll pop up and I have a website, theauroraguy.com, which I, so I did get that one. Um, and I have a bunch of free stuff on there. So I do sell eBooks and I do, um, I have like merch and stuff. So I like to, you know, be creative with how I have my photos and present them. So I have like a mug, which changes color. Uh, and it has one of my Aurora photos on that. That's pretty popular. Um, but otherwise there's a beginner's guide to Aurora chasing, which is completely free. If you sign up to my email list, you just get a download link and you can get, it's a 64 page ebook, um, really in depth. So it goes into everything we talked about today, plus more, especially more on the Aurora forecasting side, but I have a blog I post monthly. Um, there's just a lot of stuff on there. So I encourage people to go check it out. Well, you're, since you're doing your PhD, see, I'm going to help you out here. I, I love coming up with names. You're doing your PhD. A couple of years, you're going to have a PhD. You should be the Aurora doctor. Oh, yeah. yeah. There you go. I haven't even thought about that. That's good. I like that. And I Googled doctor. it. There's nobody Doc. called the Aurora doctor. Dr. Aurora. There Dr. you go. Aurora. There you go. Yes. I like that. Although there is a fertility clinic that you may have to go to battle with. But anyway, you can get that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you give tours or anything? Or are you involved um, in the tour company? Yeah, so I don't personally give tours just because school so so much work. Um, but I do have um, an affiliate uh, relationship with a tour company here in Alaska called Greatland Adventures. A lot of my friends were already guiding for them, and they reached out to me asking if you know I was looking to promote a specific tour company. And that's the most common question I get is you know what's the best tour company in Alaska? So um, Greatland Adventures, and you can book a tour uh, through my website. Cool. Excellent. Um, I think we're getting to time. Shane, uh, anything that uh, we missed here? This has been wild, like super informative. And uh, as Chris alluded to earlier, when we're out observing with our telescopes, sometimes we view the Aurora as a bit of a, you know, fish shaking event. Like, <laughs> why are you here? You can't observe. But, uh, you know, what you've uh, outlined here gives us a lot to observe of the Aurora. Like there's so many different aspects to it to try mm -hmm. to catch some of this phenomenon will be pretty cool. Uh, so thank you for that. And, uh, certainly appreciate your passion for this topic. Uh, this has been really enjoyable. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Vincent. Um, I think that in this episode, having you on, I think I learned the most about something that I've seen the most which I knew the least about. So I've learned an awful lot here. This is That's kind good. of blown my mind in, in mm -hmm. a couple of ways. Yeah. I had no idea about like that, that pattern throughout the night. Yeah. Cause, mm -hmm. cause I've seen this so many times and I just assumed that this was randomness and that mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I never concluded that there was uh you know, some science behind. Oh yeah. 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 It's wild. So thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Dear listeners, please subscribe, share the show with other stargazers you know, and send us your show ideas, observations, and questions. Or if you're listening to this and you would like to be a guest and you have something interesting to say like Vincent did, get in <laughs> touch with us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.